Exchange Guild. This podcast is sponsored by and was recorded at Normandale Community College's Partnership Center, home to Normandale Center for Applied Learning. They provide relevant and customized learning for working professionals, teams, and organizations of all sizes that want to invest in their greatest asset, their people. To learn more about Normandale's programs, call 952-358-8343 or visit them at normandale.edu ce. You're listening to the Change Illuminati Podcast with Dan Olson. Welcome to his latest audio adventure, unscripted conversations with leaders, consultants, and everyday people to collect their stories and learn how they overtly or covertly practice their craft to help others navigate through change. These discussions will also explore best practices and emerging trends in the field of organizational change, effectiveness, resiliency, and leadership. And now, here's your host, Dan Olson. In a world of specialization and focus, David Quimby stands out as a voice in the wilderness for interdisciplinary collaboration and innovation. In my opinion, his deep and diverse background in multiple domains as well as his success as an entrepreneur and thought leader, makes him not only the world's most interesting man, but also the world's most interested man. Check out this impressive list of his accomplishments and experiences. He is a co-founder of Collaborus and the founder of Adaptive Avenue. He is a software entrepreneur and a patented inventor in the user experience domain. He is a mathematical economist and systems analyst, He is also an expert in network analysis and systematic innovation. He has climbed Mount Whitney, trekked across Thailand, sea kayaked in Alaska, conducted a photographic safari in Kenya, and has traversed the U.S. and Canada by motorcycle. In today's podcast, we discuss the organization of the future, agile as a catalyst in the workplace, tops-down and bottoms-up approaches to org design, And we also learn how David was attracted to the practice of change management and get his predictions for its future. Along the way, we also traveled down a few rabbit trails, including a review of the scientific method, social network analysis, process consulting, and why this podcast is named for the Change Illuminati. Please note that this podcast was originally recorded in June of 2014 and has been collecting dust due to my lack of bandwidth. After digging it out again, I'm surprised at how well it still stands up and how prescient David was in his thinking. This session was our second attempt at recording a podcast together. The first conversation was almost two hours and killed the batteries on my digital recorder, thereby dooming the recording. We start this discussion trying to remember what ground we covered before, and we pick up in mid-sentence. And now, finally, the Change Illuminati conversation with David Quimby. All right. So, how do we constru- how do we reconstruct what we did last time and try to capture that? Because, man, we were we had a full head of steam last time. Well, somehow we started talking without even knowing that the uh, the mic was on, and that was really subtle. Did that help? Um, I thought it was good. I thought it was good the way you know. But I'm trying to think what were we talking about? See, because it was kind of a segue. It wasn't yeah. exactly on the agenda. It was something about 
you know, like maybe we were talking about something related to MNCMN or something like that. You know? Well, I think the thing where you really started to pick up steam last time was, you know, um, you know, I, I think I paid you the compliment that you're like the Tony Stark of my world. You're mm -hmm. like the only futurist that I know. I mean, mm -hmm. you have this cross-disciplinary background, you know, uh, economist, UI, software, patent holder, dot connector. I mean, is there anything that you haven't read? So how is it that you came to change management or how did you stumble across it and, and why the affin affinity now? I mean, you uh, firmly have established a place within the change management community. You're digging it. Uh, you're, you're inspiring people. You know, how, what was your journey to that? I mentioned I have, you know, a, kind of a couple I'm using now. One that I use is an interdisciplinary thought leader who operates smoothly across strategic and tactical domains. Yep. So there's that interdisciplinary, which, um, A, you know, I'm not sure the world understands it yet or values it yet. I think it's, you know, something that's yet to come, but I'm starting to kind of really resonate with it and realize that's where I land. That's my, mm -hmm. like my, my position. Um, and, um, I think I might have, um, might have shared the story with you at one point. I uh, only learned that I was, so there's this term T-shaped personality type. It comes out of IDEO, and uh, I don't know if it's Tim Brown or, or probably uh, Tom Kelly at, at IDEO. Uh, Tom Kelly and his brother David Kelly at IDEO wrote a book called The Ten Faces of Innovation, and one of the faces is the T-shaped thinker. And what's the T-shaped thinker? It's not a specialist. It's not a generalist. It's... Um, kind of both. Um, you, you know, you have multiple specialties. And so one thing we're learning uh, in the, you know, increasingly complex world as we apply things like, you know, uh, complexity theory, et cetera, is, uh, you know, we used to think the generalists, we, we knew that the dots needed to be connected and that the world was becoming increasingly, increasingly specialized in various disciplines. And it wasn't like we didn't realize that, but we still needed that specialization and increasingly specialization, increasing specialization. But we kind of thought, well, the generalists will connect the dots. Well, what we're finding, I think, with that that approach is that it's, you know, it's, it's hard to connect the dots when you don't have a, a fairly significant expertise in the discipline. Um, and so, you know, we're starting to hear about this T-shaped thinker, which is someone who has, you know, a fair amount of uh, expertise in multiple disciplines and then can therefore connect the dots. Now, I didn't set out to become a T-shaped personality type. I only found out about it. I, I, I mentioned an architect friend of mine only brought this to my attention about a, a year ago. <clears throat> we were having an animated conversation and our arms are waving and I think my arms kind of did a, you know, a kind of a horizontal and then like a vertical. He goes, you just, you know, betrayed yourself. You're a T-shaped thinker. And, um, <clears throat> And uh, so we started talking about, well, where did that, you know, uh, tradition come from? And since then, I've gotten much more into, you know, design thinking and some of the um, some of the uh, the ideal uh, stuff, uh, which really comes out of, uh, you know, their um, design agency. And, and they've kind of transplanted it into the D school at uh, Stanford. And it's kind of like spreading over the over the world um, now. And um, but, uh, you know, I, I noticed that over time I'd sort of built um, a series of disciplines. Again, not really like I consciously set out to do it, but now look, you know, I like to say life is lived forward, not backward. But when I look, you know, backward now, I see, oh, I was sort of semi-consciously building a set of disciplines <clears throat> that would enable me to solve problems that were interesting to me. Um, and I sometimes think I have, you know, about 
six disciplines that, you know, where I'm fairly strong and could, you know, practice reasonably well, um, professionally, architectural design, uh, mathematical economics, systems analysis, uh, organizational behavior, technology assessment, um, and what I miss. Um, hmm. Um, hmm. Anyway, that's, that's five. I was thinking of something else. Uh, oh, software engineering. Duh. Yeah. Hello. Okay. Um, and, um, and I really do combine those, uh, those, um, capabilities and, um, it, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's fraught with pitfalls. Um, but I think that's kind of where the action is and that's where, you know, where I start to get interested is when I'm combining, um, multiple disciplines and, and it, it gives me an interesting sort of set of, uh, problems or opportunities to, you know, to solve, you know, not, not you know, everything, but a certain, you know, type of uh, problems that are interesting to me. And for example, at one point when I had, you know, in my background, like, uh, you know, uh, economics and systems analysis, I realized, oh, what I really want is I want to add a, you know, quote unquote, soft skill, even though organizational behavior is not soft by any means. I mean, I think, I think it's okay to, to look at things hard and soft as a qualitative measure, so long as we're not making a judgment about, oh, one is hard and one is easy. I don't, for a minute, see soft as easy. And in fact, some of the soft uh, aspects are hardest of all. And that, that's why I sort of had this yearning to add, quote unquote, soft skills, add organizational behavior, organizational design to the portfolio. And that kind of opened up a realm, you know, uh, <clears throat> of other things. <clears throat> and uh, so then kind of, you know, looking at the breadcrumb trail um, and and saying, well, gee, how did I get into change management, I think that would be one of the early breadcrumbs is, you know, starting to get interested in organizational behavior, what, you know, at one time was called socio-technical systems, um, meaning how do humans and, and machines and, and organizational systems interact and, and how do we introduce change into those systems and what are the reper repercussions and what are, you know, the, the optimal paths and some of that kind of thing. And I think it was kind of a vague interest. I don't think I was exactly on to, quote, unquote, formal change management yet. Um, and then along in the sort of 90s time frame, of course, we had stuff like Hammer and Champy with uh, uh, redesigning, reengineering the corporation. Yep. <clears throat> and that stuff was, you know, right up my alley because I was trained in systems analysis. I think you need, you know, and by the way, interestingly enough, architectural design, which I apply a lot to software engineering and to uh, and software design and also to organizational design. I think there's some design principles there that um, are, you know, really useful and really applicable. <clears throat> and so... That was kind of an interesting intersection for me to start to get interested in change management per se or change management formally to be able to apply the combination of systems analysis, things like architectural design, as well as look at some of the uh, organizational behavior um, aspects. Also, around that time, I was a corporate executive in the technology realm. And if I wasn't doing change, what was I doing then? You know, because, I, you know, I really, I think even at that time, sort of vaguely had the notion of, you know, the basic change model, current state, future state, what's the gap, figure out the gap, you know, determine the gap, and then what what's the intervention or series of interventions that are going to bridge the gap between current state and future state, and, uh, and by the way, stabilize it at that level, you know, make sure it, it sticks. And so I think I was getting some practical um, exposure, and then, of course, in the just in the process of doing doing and leading software engineering in a large corporate environment. Um, um, I got exposed, to, uh, you know, at, at that time, uh, you know, a lot was happening around BPR, business process reengineering. And so that was another kind of uh, dot on the map. 
And so I think I had some kind of foundational pieces there. Um, and, you know, kind of really from a, you know, focus on process, uh, process design and what, you know, what ultimately is, you know, uh, the change, you know, if it doesn't involve, I mean, even a, you know, a technical change ultimately is going to involve some, some process change and therefore, you know, associated communication, associated training, et cetera. But I think I tend to go from my, you know, from my view on change, you know, the heart of the matter is I tend to go to the process change that's going to be involved. Not even, you know, about the technology. The technology is, you know, typically either just a, you know, a, a kind of a, a, a catalyst, a piece of the intervention, um, kind of a fringe element. But ultimately, um, I get interested in the process piece and doing the process change and bridging for current and future state. So, you know, those are some early leads. And then I think there was kind of a long, um, in a way, a, you know, a hiatus or, a, you know, kind of a sabbatical because I got off into other things. I got deeper into technology. I got into my own um, technology startup. I became a software inventor. I started, you know, I got involved in the web and in human interface design. I started um, um, uh, filing, uh, you know, got a few e-commerce patents. Um, and I kind of went into the sort of the, the technology deep dive for a while. Not that that stuff didn't involve change, but it was much more kind of at a consumer level than, you know, sort of introducing or uh, 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 conducting intervention in a corporate vi- environment or, or, or a, an organizational environment. And again, that kind of added just another point on the spectrum, because for me, you know, going after consumer technology wasn't, you know, where I'd been living. I'd been much more involved in enterprise technology, organizational technology, um, uh, that sort of thing. And so, um, uh, you know, having um, gone off in that direction, I think I started to get get a little bit away from more formal, you know, change management. Um, and then kind of through some of that journey as I got more involved in e-commerce and, and, and that sort of thing, um, quick, quick side uh, point I guess I'll mention, um, and feel free to redirect me if I'm getting off track here. Um, at one point in time, I'd had another seed that was kind of emerging as I was taking a deeper dive into e-commerce is I'd have, while I was uh, pursuing another discipline, technology assessment, which is identifying emerging technologies, coming up with commercialization, you know, uh, um, um, trajectories and identifying who are going to be the early adopters, who are the early users, what are the, you know, what's the competitive landscape <clears throat> kind of out over the horizon. Kind of like I sometimes characterize it as a Gartner type uh, type activity, except that I was doing it at uh, Stanford Research Institute, where there we had, it, it was a, it was very similar with a couple differences. One is we were really looking more at rather than sort of what I would characterize for Gartner, the one to five year time frame. We were really looking more at the six to ten year time frame and what's going to be coming um, on the radar screen on the, you know over the horizon during that time frame. <clears throat> and then we had behind us this array of, you know, science and, and technology labs, you know, uh, really unrivaled um, that, you know, we could use to tap into our thinking around where our, you know, where is the commercial landscape headed. So, uh, you know, really all the engineering disciplines, all the sciences, the physical sciences, life sciences, all that stuff, we had uh, labs and research groups that were um, oh, wow. specialized in those areas. And they did contract research in those areas for both government and private industry, you know, com- you know, internationally, both the U.S. Uh, as well as Asia and Europe. And so it's kind of an interesting base on which to be doing, you know, quote unquote, business intel- intelligence or, sure. or technology assessment or whatever we'd want to call it. Well, in that uh, journey, I got um, uh, got involved with a guy named Doug Engelbart, who um, in the world of human interfaces, legendary, not well known outside that 
realm, but he's actually the inventor of the the mouse, the graphical user interface. He built the first um, operational uh, version of hypertext, which all these things are kind of elements of the computer environment that we knew today. And so, in and take for granted too. Exactly. Well, yeah. and 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 you know, we don't necessarily see. Um, the origins, but they're really the origins of the Windows operating system or the Mac operating system. If you go out back even to the roots of where that stuff came from, it really came out of Xerox yeah, Park. I was say it's Park, yeah. Which is you know somewhat well known, but but really Xerox Park came from SRI. That was really Doug Engelbart's lab at SRI, which got you know at one point defunded by ARPA, which was funding all that advanced human interface work and didn't see commercial potential. So they just turned off the spigot. Well, you know, uh, it just wasn't going to die that easily. And so Xerox, Xerox ended up picking up a, a lot of it. Now, they've obviously throughout history had their challenges in commercializing advanced technologies, except for copy machines. Uh, but anything else, it's sort of been challenging. And so it's not surprising that it didn't see the light of day, you know, at, at Xerox. It ultimately went uh, other directions. But in my exposure, in my, in my work with uh, Doug Engelbart, oh, by the way, he was also involved heavily in what we called in those days computer-supported collaborative work, CSCW, which really was, you know, became social computing, which we pay, became social networking, which became social media, uh, you know, as we know it today. And a lot of, a lot of the hypertext elements, et cetera. In fact, a real interesting demo that he did, and I'm going to say 68 or 69 at the, uh, what was called the Joint Computer Conference in San Francisco, um, demoed a lot of these elements that we're talking about. They demoed, uh, you know, a connection over the internet. They demoed video teleconferencing, the mouse, hypertext, a lot of that stuff. You can still find it today. In fact, I probably have a link to it off my, uh, off my Adaptive Avenue site. It's called the mother of all demos. And, and it really kind of shows the early inklings of, you know, pretty much everything we know, uh, know today. Um, and so I was working with Doug. I got involved both in, you know, what we called, you know, groupware or CSCW, as well as human interface, and so I started to get some of that stuff in my in my genes, and and it's some of that passion and some of that motivation that I was uh, chasing uh, relative to um, human interface on the web and relative to user experience on the web and making the uh, navigation of the web and and, um, and and presentation on the web more. Um, uh, more consumable, more more accessible, that sort of thing. <clears throat> well, in in my uh, travels, in in, in uh, moving from really what would have been advanced uh, browser technology to more commercial applications like uh, site level navigation and ultimately um, online advertising, I got closer and closer to e-commerce, uh, you know, per se, and and um, uh, you know, formal uh, strategy around e-commerce, that sort of thing, which led me to doing uh, um, some consulting uh, in the e-commerce realm at, uh, you know, a large uh, retail entity called Best Buy, which, Dan, that's where you and I kind of initially crossed paths, you kind of seeing the opportunity to connect the dots with what I know and, and bring some of that stuff to uh, to bear at, at Best Buy. So, you know, a long way of saying the circle kind of closed around the change management realm because I found myself back in the large enterprise world mm -hmm. introducing, um, you know, uh, technology interventions to a large degree and seeing, um, you know, uh, again, the, you know, the, the challenge of um, making sure we look at, you know, technology intervention from the perspective of a change model and, and saying, hey, current state, future state, what, you know, what's the gap? And what are the interventions required to to make it happen um, in order to um, you know in order to uh, make sure that um, 
you know, the changes accepted and that we're able to, you know, gain some advantages from it, realize the benefits that, you know, we'd originally uh, expected to get from it, et cetera. So that kind of brought on a renewed interest in formal change management and really through just, you know, uh, uh, knowing you and doing some work at Best Buy, I got then exposed to uh, your brainchild, Minnesota Change Management Network, and I've sort of just gradually gotten more and more involved in, um, in uh, you know, change management and, and that change management community from that uh, from that perspective. So when I think back to the time, I think it's interesting, uh, you know, to hear the the context of what came before, what was the prologue? Because sure. yeah. I remember you made some leaps and some ideas that you wanted to convey and you weren't getting traction. And we actually started talking about what are some stakeholder interventions that you could okay. do to help Good. drive um, to get, you know, it's almost like you just wanted to shake these people to say, hey, you know, you're missing this or, you know, this is this is what's coming. So um, good, 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 good insight and good reminder, Dan. And in fact, you know, really kind of illustrates um, sort of back to a couple things, you know, the nature of being, you know, a, a technology forecaster, whatever you want to call that, you know, futurist and, um, you know, sort of the T-shaped personality type, et cetera. The, the real challenge is how do you you know, how do you assimilate some of that stuff, you know, with some level of, you know, usefulness versus being a voice in the wilderness? Um, mm -hmm. You know, how yep. do you, you know, parse it out? I, I mean, I, you know, obviously, a you know, strong, you know, supporter of agile methods and, and how to take, you know, small pieces and, and introduce them. And you were and, agile uh, before agile, you well, could argue, <laughs> you, you know, you might, you might say that. Yeah. Um, and that it was just kind of a natural way to do big things, you know, things that are, you know, too big to get done in one fell swoop, got to break it down. And, and, uh, again, I find myself, um, typically doing what I would call second order thinking. For example, I love applying change management to change management. You know, how, how is the profession changing? How is the discipline changing? That's why I'm sort of, you know, I think probably instinctively leading the, you know, the, the practice development element of that community is because that's, where I tend to go is, you know, what's the next level? You know, where is this? Um, where does this um, lead? Likewise, you know, how do we think about? You know, how do we use software engineering to think about the practice of software engineering? How do we? Th how do we use software engineering principles to think about the way we're doing software engineering? And I think that's really where Agile came from. You know, is is uh, it's it's taking some insights from the way we do. You know, fr from actually doing software engineering and doing it in more flexible, what I would call biological models like object orientation and like iterative approaches, um, which are a lot more flexible in scale to large complex systems much more effectively than, you know, some of the initial problems we solved in, uh, in uh, uh, software engineering were just, you know, we just needed a, a very narrow scope, you know, calculated or processed with a very high degree of, you know, accuracy. And, and so the early, you know, software systems we had did that well, you know, um, they were very fast, they were very accurate, they were also very narrow, you know, and the application of automation has become much broader, and it needs to be, you know, much more, you know, much softer in a complex, um, in, a, in a complex sense, you know, and so I think we've, um, I think that's kind of where Agile, you know, uh, uh, the essence says, you know, of it has, uh, has arisen. Um, you know, one of the things that I've always appreciated about the Agile methodology is the focus on th there's a there's a customer voice present in all of the the sessions, whether you have the stand up meetings sure. or yeah. you have yeah. you know your iterative you know workflow. 
Um, I like that role. And as a change practitioner, I think for me, what that does or what Agile provides is a grounding in what needs to be done um, and and allows people to understand how they, uh, you know, maybe this is more from a strategy point of view, but uh, from a change point of view, you're able to communicate accurately what the customer wants and needs. And so everyone is working in service of that. Uh, To me, I, I see so much overlap between agile and, and change that, you know, I, I encourage people that if they're interested in any way, shape or form, I think their, their, their change methodology or their, their implementations or change interventions actually benefit from that knowledge because of some of the, some of the rigor that just seems intuitively built sure, into the, the sure. system. Yeah. yeah. Uh, do you see that or no key, just... key point, Dan. And I think, you know, first of all, and you've, you've heard me say, and I'll probably, you know, keep repeating that I think, so there's some language uh, and there's some semantics here that, um, and I really do think language forms our ways of thinking and that, you know, language is a key tool we use for, you know, forming culture. And I think the agile movement is much more of a cultural change than it is a, you know, that it's a technical change. You know, technical thinking was at the root of it, but ultimately it comes down to, you know, a cultural change. And I think there's, there's a, you know, a couple of confusions that can tend to happen and we need to be uh, mindful of them. One is that when we start talking about agile, agile and change, um, the first confusion that I noticed hap- notice happens is people think of doing change around agile projects. Well, mm-hmm. that's not what we're talking about, you know, right. but it really very quickly gets, you know, kind of slides into that kind of, you know, framework. And what you and I are talking about, you know, I think, you know, to be just, you know, very specific linguistically and semantically is we're talking about applying the, uh, the agile methodology, the agile way of thinking to change, which I don't think it's there yet. I think change is still fairly kind of, you know, um, monolithic, fairly linear in its sort of elements, components, and its, you know, its approach. And, and there's yeah. an oppor- a lot of opportunity to apply. The I, I'd say that be, because there's so many applications of change methodology being built around standard waterfall oh. software deployment or, or hard t- technology deployments. Yeah, that I think you're right. True. Yeah, yeah. And that's probably where it's coming from sure. is the is the change methodology is is mirroring, you know, the the software development methodology. Um, and um uh, you know, I think, uh, so there's, you know, there's a piece of, you know, yeah, identifying, um, let's truly talk about, apply, let's do the other way around. In other words, let's, let's let change management be a, a catalyst for those types of, you know, uh, uh, situations rather than sort of mimicking the software development methodology. How about being a change agent or catalyst and coming in with a more agile approach? And I think, uh, the other piece that, you know, comes to mind is we're starting to hear about, the, the agile organization, you know, quote unquote, and, or I sometimes call it, you know, the adaptive organization, but, you know, take your pick and, and there's some thinking and there's some, you know, discussion around, well, but it's really different than, uh, agile, quote unquote, methodology, agile software development, that sort of thing to which I would say, I don't really think so. Um, I think, you know, first of all, both these, you know, things came out of, you know, common roots, which is, you know, complex adaptive systems and thinking more, more robustly about how do we do really big, really, you know, uh, complex systems and, and organizations are no different in that regard than some of the extremely complex software implementations that we've done. It's just software is maybe 20 years ahead of organizations in terms of, um, of, um, of embracing 
some of the more robust models that are available for uh, for chasing uh, complexity. I think that's what we're seeing in object orientation and agile methodology um, is is really just um, you know the ability to embrace much higher degrees of complexity, and I think we're going to see some of that uh, capability. Uh, assimilated into the way we design organizations and 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 uh, mm-hmm. execute organizations. Now, <clears throat> you know, uh, you know, make mo- no mistake, organizations are not machines and they're not software implementations, but they still observe the laws of you know physics and a lot of the laws of nature. And there's a lot of uh, a lot of um, principles that we can apply. You know, if we do it uh, in in a way that accommodates you know and, and, and recognizes the you know the difference between an organization and and uh, and a machine, and I think that um, that uh, as we move toward um, you know quote unquote um, the agile organization, well, I, th- I think the obstacle that we're seeing right now is, uh, and you kind of pointed to it, you've got waterfall development methods which work fine with more brittle, more kind of traditional, rigid organizational systems. But what we're seeing, and we're we're only in transition now, what we're seeing with the introduction of agile uh, methods on the software side is you're absolutely right. And I wanted to kind of counterpoint and emphasize the point you make about introducing the customer, introducing the user into every right. cycle. So you've got these really small cycles, you know, and, and you're doing iteration and the, you know, the whole, the whole concept is that, well, if we're doing small iterations, small scope, small timeframes, and, we're bringing, you know, customer feedback and input into each one of those iterations. We can't get very far off track. You yeah. know, it's the old, you know, it's the analogy of how far off track can a sailboat get when it's, you know, kind of tacking on its way to a exactly. point on the horizon or whatever. It's a great analogy. I think it fits. I think, you know, sometimes we use analogies that don't fit. I think that's a, you know, a perfect analogy. I think it fits perfectly. But I think what we're starting to find out, learn as this, as this process plays out is that um, something's happening on that customer input and that customer perspective side of the equation because the organization can't keep pace with the agile software uh, development methodology. And so, and, and, and agile software has proven to be just a screamer in terms of ability to, um, to develop, you know, pace of development as well as the ability to hit, you know, a particular target. But the, but the target that it hits is the target that's customer defined. That's built in. And, and what we're finding is that because it moves so quickly, there may be a proxy customer input there that sort of seems like it's playing the game. But what we're starting to find out is we still end up off course. And you have to ask yourself, hmm, how did we end up off course if there was customer input all along the way? And I think, you know, again, we'll be learning, but I think part of the issue is that the organization can't keep pace. And so it's kind of, I don't want to say... You know, faking its way isn't quite the right language, but it's not fully there, fully present, fully robust in, you know, in uh, um, in participating in that process because it simply can't uh, it can't keep up. And so we need to continue to um, I I think we need to take the agile methodology and start diffusing it across the organization. And it may be that we take, you know, that we break off in agile spirit. We, we break off a piece of the marketing department or a piece of manufacturing or a piece of finance or whichever the case may be and start operating it in an agile fashion and interfacing it up against agile, you know, software development. And then on maybe on, on some of its other boundaries, interfacing it up against some more traditional, you know, business functions, more traditional finance, more traditional marketing, that sort of thing. But I think, um, I think that's what we're starting to run into is is that disconnect, and and then uh, just sort of reinforcing the notion that 
you know, where this all goes, I, I, do, I, I do think is in the direction of the Agile organization and, by the way, has everything to do with Agile software development because, in fact, Agile software will be the catalyst and it's Agile software development that the Agile organization is trying to mimic. But that's my two cents on sort of where those things are headed. Yeah, okay. So you, you threw out a very evocative uh, metaphor with the the, the sailboat tacting okay. and, and and navigating and, you know, that that's an analogy for for the iterative agile process um let me let me throw something at you and get your reaction you've heard me rant a couple times about the dangers of of the the micro focus of change projects and the fact that as change practitioners we're seeing you know a lot of us are being deployed across projects that have a very narrow scope you know you're here to help this project manager not only deliver a project but make it stick and it's you know that group that project, that outcome, regardless of what the larger, you know, mothership is experiencing. So to use your analogy, there's probably in any one company, 15 to a hundred ships all doing their, their navigating back and forth. Um, how do you apply the agile thinking? How do you collect, you know, how do you bring a micro or a macro view when you have so many micro views going on, I think sure, that's, sure. you know, for me, I think that's where OD has to play a stronger role and change management needs to serve that uh, portfolio view in a, in a different way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, we're kind of singing the same tune, Dan, you're kind of playing right into my hand there. Um, I, I guess from, uh, you know, from the perspective of applying a software engineering sort of uh, mentality to, uh, you know, to the organization and saying, well, you know, what is the future, you know, of the organization? What are future forms and more adaptive forms, that sort of thing. And again, I'm going to emphasize, um, and I'm sure it will get misinterpreted nonetheless, but I'm going to emphasize organizations are not machines. And that's right. not what I'm saying, you know, and you can't just slam dunk, take software engineering models and apply them to organizations and do better organization design. But I think, and it's why I'm sort of passionately, passionately interested in both and being, you know, fairly well healed in both is to make sure I don't make errors of translating software engineering models to organization design sure. where it doesn't fit. Um, but I'm going to say a lot of the principles fit. And 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 really the more abstracted uh, concept we're talking about here is it's, it's really getting into complex adaptive systems, you know, CAS, we'll be hearing more about uh, CAS, adaptive planning, things like that. And I think those are underlying principles. They're, they're underlying both software engineering and, um, and, um, uh, organizational design. Now, uh, Agile had a number of predecessors as well, you know, as kind of uh, waypoints between traditional, you know, pro uh, procedural structured programming and getting to Agile as we know it today. And we kind of went through the era of what was called extreme programming, which was a very kind of lightweight approach to getting the job done, getting it done quickly and getting it done uh, reasonably accurately with, the, you know, the customer need in mind without taking years and years to do it and without necessarily... Uh, 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 building uh, mile-high stacks of documents uh, to do it. And yet, you know, you could argue, uh, well, extreme programming was just a, you know, it was sort of a practical response to um, some of the inefficiencies and inadequacies of traditional, you know, structured software engineering. It wasn't sort of a theoretical movement. And I guess I would say, well, it all depends on what part of the iceberg appears above the surface. I'm going to say, you know, in its sort of deep underlying principles, extreme programming, while it was a very practical movement and very practical response, was embodying and embracing 
principles of complex adaptive systems. It was seeing the, the shortfalls and the lim- limitations of linear development of waterfall methodologies, mm-hmm. that sort of thing, and saying, what is the next tier? What is the next you know stage for getting to more complex and more flexible um, uh, uh, software environments? Um, and I think back to kind of you know your questionable now how how will this apply to the organization and what what does it offer the organization our organizations today are pretty much you know interestingly enough while i'm you know the guy saying well they're not machines they're pretty much built as machines they're pretty much you know top down you know hierarchical structures and i think they're going to move in a much more biological direction they're going to look much more like you know organisms um in the future and um, and I think that means embracing and adopting some of the pr- underlying principles of object orientation, which is, you know, kind of a next generation software model beyond, you know, procedural and hierarchical uh, software right. programming, a m- much more adaptive uh, approach. And uh, and and likewise, agile, um, which is, a, you know, much more uh, biological model to software development. And I think. The, 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 the sort of middle ground is that those types of models and why they've kind of come out of complex adaptive systems and embraced and, and delivered more complexity is because um, they they address the complexity at kind of, I would say, a deeper level. The analogy that I like to uh, make, and I've had this conversation with, for example, some OD types who like to say, well, what will be, you know, what will the organization of the future, you know, look like in order to be sort of more unified and, you know, more efficient, all that kind of stuff. And I hear terms of like, well, the hearts and minds and everybody will be unified, you know, unified in, the, you know, in heart, hearts and minds. And and for some reason, uh, now we're going to probably get into some controversial territory, but for some reason that concept doesn't resonate with me. And it comes from my, you know, from systems thinking and systems analysis and, and, and thinking around, uh, you know, complex adaptive systems and how these things work is it feels too top down to me. And I think we need to get to uni- unity and the unified organization. And in fact, I think even beyond the unified organization to unified interorganizational um, uh, activity, you know, supply chain and including the customer and, and all that kind of stuff. But I think it'll be the, and the, the paradigm that I tend to use is rather than, you know, so when I hear hearts and minds, I think, well, those are organs and organs are part of, you know, organ systems, you know, so you got organ systems and organs and then tissues and then cells, et cetera. And I tend to, in the biological paradigm, go much deeper to, you know, what I'd call the, the DNA level and say it's that, that the organization of the future will be uh, unified and will manage complexity more at the DNA level. And in fact, I see, you know, in terms of a software engineering paradigm, I see a connection to um, you know, that's what object orientation is. It's a cellular right. model. It's a much more cellular model. And in fact, the World Wide Web and the Internet are built on a cellular model. And so you've got this hugely complex and powerful system that it's really just built around some very fundamental you know, principles at a very primitive level. You know, what makes the Internet work is TCP IP. You know, it's a protocol. Um, and, you know, HTTP, a way of viewing a web page and some, you know, very fundamental programs or uh, uh, protocols. But, you know, from that, you know, uh, very kind of fundamental basis and set of principles, this profusion of complexity can emerge and this profusion of functionality. And I think the same thing will happen um, with, you know, the organization, or at least that's kind of my vote for uh, the future direction. And it, and it tends to be kind of the way of thinking I apply to organizational design and then, within organizational design, change management as 
kind of a, you know, a tool for moving from one right. organizational state to another is I tend to think granular. I tend to get down to that, you know, kind of DNA level and say, what, what are we going to, you know, what, what's the kind of DNA we're going to introduce to, uh, to, uh, um, kind of optimize the, uh, functioning of the organization. But I don't know if that's kind of getting to, you know, what, what you were thinking about in terms of how, how software will apply to change in organization. Well, or, it's interesting to hear, you know, you, you, just kind of go down those rabbit trails. Uh, okay. Any anything with uh, paired programming as being a perhaps a hmm. analogy or, or a something to tap into, or maybe even um, things like uh, open source or or even like GitHub, where there's transparency. Where here's my code. Go ahead and fork it. Uh, use it as you want. Um, yeah. Yeah. So you know, I see a trend towards uh, transparency and sharing in organizations, and that uh, accelerating you know, learning. Well, you know, I'll kind of reinforce that notion. And and again, in all those things, I think there's a theme that I would call transparency is a good term. Another term I'd use is abundance. You know, obviously you guys at star really kind of, you know, dwell on that theme theme. And and I know it really resonates for me and, and, and sort of the, the parallel. And, and, and obviously we, we live and operate in an industrial world where all the entities, all the, you know, uh, individuals and all the organizations are at different stages of development and are b- embracing some of these, you know, uh, uh, mindsets to different degrees. Are there any companies that you are aware of that are, are adaptive in this manner that you're speaking of? Um, well, that's no, that's a good question. Um, I know our friend in common, common Erica Garms wrote about the brain friendly workplace using neuroscience as a way to talk about what uh, factors within an organization, um, from a neuroscience point of view and change, right. help, uh, facilitate that. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, I think that's an indicator and it'll be interesting to see who, who starts adopting some of that mm-hmm. leading edge stuff and, and very fair question, Dan. And I think, you know, it's almost kind of a signal for me to think about, you know, I tend to think about the stuff that's not quite being done yet. And it's just, it's just a tendency I have. And it's very fair to ask me now, where is this being done? Right. And, What's and that Gertner role that you play exactly, or am I a little further out? Am I, you know, kind of saying, well, this will be being done, and and again, how do you bottle that? How do you package it? How do you commercialize it? All those are fair questions, and I it just I instinctively, but fair question, I entertain it, but I always tend to be sort of operating at sort of that edge of, well, no, it's not quite being done. Now, um, uh, I I recently saw, um, oh shoot, I'm trying to remember his name now. Uh, pretty prominent OD practitioner. Um, uh, his name will come to me when I start telling his story. Anyway, he does, he's, he's got an interesting presentation on the web where he talks about the integration of the traditional hierarchy and the more, the network organization, which is in a way that's what we're calling it, you know, calling it. And, and he shows how, um, how, um, uh, the innovative and open-ended or from a, you know, an Erica Garms neuroscience perspective, the non-repetitive activities mm-hmm. tend to happen in a network. Uh, concept and um, and in fact, you know, I think it was probably Tim Brown or David Kelly or uh, Tom Kelly, one of those you know ideal guys who first started talking about ideas as networks, you know, um, and uh, and and I think so. I think that notion is starting to form up. You know, signals like you mentioned, like you know, applying neuroscience to the organization, like um, shoot, his name's run through my head a couple times here now. Um, but um, the idea that um, that there are these, there are both, from a neuroscience perspective, there are both repetitive and non-repetitive activities happening in the organization, and that the the 
repetitive activities are going to tend to find a place in a hierarchical slash linear structure, and the um, the nonlinear activities are going to tend to find themselves in a more granular kind of network, amorphous type structure. And then the organizational challenge of the future becomes how do you integrate, you know, these two because you really need them both. And the idea sure. that you're going to operate as a network without a scalability component, you know, once you're kind of ready to get a fish and go to market, that sort of thing is, is, is somewhat limiting, you know, but likewise, the idea that you're going to operate as a hierarchy and still be able to be creative, innovative, you know, over kind of the, you know, the, 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 the long haul is also somewhat, you know, somewhat limiting. So a uh, good, good question to pose. I'll, I'll, I'll be thinking about where do I think, you know, some of these things are, are finding root or will find, you know, root um, early on. You so, know, it's interesting. You, you just mentioned the repetitive, non-repetitive uh, activities going on in an organization. I think that's a good bridging topic uh, to Matt, Matt Hunt, who's okay, going to speak sure. uh, this coming yeah. at the next uh, Change Summit about uh, failure in organizations. And I think it's a, you know, a direct connection to uh, the level of innovation within an organization and what level of failure is allowed, both politically, culturally, financially, and and whether or not that reinforces, to your point, the repetitive and non-repetitive things. It, it's almost, again, it's um, it's almost like there's a biological component within the the, the organization itself of of what the culture will allow. Interesting, yeah, interesting distinction, and I think that. Um, Innovation has to be viewed as a non-repetitive activity, and and the way we measure it, and the way we structure it, the way we manage it. Now, it doesn't mean sorry. An incentive. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And it and it doesn't mean that you know um, the scientific method isn't still in operation. You know, and and by the way, around you know innovation, we're really seeing you know emerge, and this has been kind of interesting because you know I I get told that I kind of do scientific methods sort of just in my genes. I mean, I just instinctively do, you know, uh, apply it to um, various situations, make sure that we're getting, uh, uh, you know, all the information out of the system that we can get out of the information, uh, out of the system that we don't leave any stones unturned, that sort of thing, that we adequately form hypotheses, test hypotheses, that sort of thing. And that type of approach um, has a place in, you know, in, in the realm of innovation. And yet it can't be the only methodology. And I'm starting, uh, you know, starting to see attention. So, you know, another area of interest and focus for me is design thinking. And we're starting to see design thinking be distinguished actually from scientific method in that you don't necessarily start with a problem and then proceed to solve the problem. You start with, well, here's, you know, a better way or, you know, start to, you know, in, in some ways it's, and again, it's not, scientific and it's not pretending pretending to be scientific but it it has its place and in the broad innovation realm i think we'll see kind of a tension between those uh things you know and and those two kind of um mindsets but even scientific method in inherently isn't necessarily repeatable it's a discovery process and you don't know what you're going to discover and then you want to make sure you you know you, you obviously the heart of the scientific method isn't to start out to prove something that you already believe you know you want to you want to be data driven you want to gather data and form hypotheses around the the data you gather but it's still a non so that aspect conceptually is repeatable but the, you know the process in application in any particular application is not repeatable and I think when we do innovation we need to really frame it you know back to that that notion frame it as a non repetitive activity. And, um, and, uh, I think that's kind of a cultural challenge today because right. what we want to do in the organization, especially the large organization is 
we want to treat it. We want to package it all up. We always want to have a methodology around it. And, um, and, and, um, we want to make it repeatable. We want it measurable with, you know, traditional repeatable, you know, metrics, that sort of thing. And I think, um, yeah, I think it's a cultural challenge to really embrace the notion of, um, of non-repetitive, you know, activity and, and encourage it culturally, measure it, uh, in productive ways. And at the same time, not fall over the cliff because, uh, you know, you can end up at the other extreme too, where you're not, um, you know, expecting results and, and no, you, you know, you need to expect results out of the innovation process. It's just, there's, you know, there's, um, better ways to, you know, better ways to do it than maybe some of the traditional mindsets around trying to repeat it because it's inherently innovation and, and creativity are, um, are inherently linked. And, and you, you know, you and I both know in our own creative, creative kind of endeavors, you can't, manage it, put it in a bottle. You run with, you know, creativity uh, when it, you know, makes itself uh, available and, and you... Uh, the, the muse has to strike. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And and you leverage it, you know, when it's there. But at the same time, kind of create, you know, certain uh, circumstances. And by the way, while we're on that topic, I'll also mention uh, I see a strong... So obviously the, the, the failure piece and the, the quote-unquote, um, you know, positive uh, spin on failure. And then also... Um, the link between change and innovation. And I think, I think, uh, they're, they're inherently linked, they're siblings, they're cousins. And I think change can have a lot to do with, um, unleashing and unlocking, uh, innovation, because if we don't have, you know, a, uh, if, if the change process is too rigid and too inhibiting, then we're either not going to produce innovation or even if innovation occurs, we're not going to be able to, you know, diffuse it, uh, implement it, introduce it, you know, um, that sort of thing. So I think um, I think the way we approach change can be, uh, you know, a, a catalyst for um, for innovation and a and a uh, kind of a reinforcer of innovation. And I think, as we discussed, uh, where does agile fit, you know, in the change realm? Um, I think we should also be thinking about you know, sort of an, almost at a macro level, you know, what's, what's, the, you know, the, the raison d'etre, what's the reason for being of change management in itself. And I almost want to put on the table, well, one of its, you know, reasons for being is promote innovation that we should have in mind that, you know, um, innovation is a good thing that we're seeing, you know, we're seeing that in the economics and the financials that, you know, organizations that are better at innovating are, you know, being more successful financially and that uh, we need to be thinking about how to tie those two things together and how, how it is that uh, our approach to change can, can promote support and reinforce the innovation process. I love that. Yeah. I've always viewed change as being a, a catalyst to improve a system. Hmm. So, you know, if, if project management is to get the, get a project done, changes to make it stick. Well, to make it stick, you, you have to fix the communication barriers, you have to help people navigate from current state to future state, build their confidence, uh, give them the tools and the equipment to, to, to do that. So that's an interesting, uh, wow, that you went really deep there. <laughs> Sorry, probably got lost in the woods. I, I'd like to go back. You made a comment uh, a couple of minutes ago about how the uh, scientific method uh, is, you know, kind of built into your, your DNA and, and, you know, I, I would suspect that that's not always the case, that there probably was a time where you had to be a little bit more on purpose and through repetition, through application, you've, you've done that. And, and you make me think 
about the change practitioner and, you know, the, the, these podcasts that Paul and I are doing and having conversations with change practitioners, no two change practitioners have come about change in the same way, nor do they have the same backgrounds uh, or the same collection of, of experiences or methodologies applied. So I think uh, what's interesting is I think we all need some, you know, quantum level of exposure to things and then we become better situational consultants and then figure out what's applicable in that moment, which I think, you know, goes to your 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 point about innovation and being, uh, you know, part and parcel with change and that um, I think the good change practitioner has to literally create things on the fly uh, and, the, and the better change practitioners are the ones who are agnostic when it comes to methodologies. They'll use whatever is available. Uh, in fact, they'll try to leverage whatever is present in the existing system uh, to better grab uh, attention, mind share, or, you know, whatever leverage point you can find. Yeah, good. Really, yeah, really good trigger there, Dan. Um, boy, it fires off a couple of things. One is, uh, and I think we're pretty much in sync all the way across the board, uh, certainly around the notion of scientific method. Yes, I did arrive at it probably unscientifically, but, you know, just uh, in my travels discovered that, you know, it it uh, it, it works um, at least, you know, uh, it, it's in, in its essential concepts, you know, the notion of, you know, let's walk in, let's gather some data, let's understand the situation, let's form some... I mean, I think hypothesis testing is just a hugely, hugely powerful technique versus having no framework at all or versus having a framework and be convinced that it's right. You know, the notion that you can kind of catalyze activity, you can catalyze thinking by forming hypotheses. You know, there's a whole art to forming hypotheses, you know, because if you form too many or too few or kind of quote-unquote the wrong ones, well, you're maybe not going to get to a desired endpoint within the available resources of time, you know, activity, whatever the case may be. So it's not to say it's not an art, but, uh, you know, it, it can be a, a tremendous um, leverage for kind of getting more bang for the buck and getting farther down the road in a period of time by saying, let's, let's you know, after some initial exposure, initial exposure, let's form some hypotheses around, you know, what we think is happening here and then let's, you know, test them and let's be, be, be very open-ended, you know, about the testing process and make sure we're gathering our data in an objective way, not, you know, with intent to, um, to uh, you know, to, to support the hypotheses. Um, and, and, and to me, uh, you know, when you suggest, you know, when you act, you know, when you ask about uh, applying that sort of way of thinking to the change uh, practice itself, I can't help but think, of the connection to what I'd call process consultation, which is, yeah, mm -hmm. approaching change from the perspective of a process consultant, not going in with a cookbook, obviously not going in with a preformed conclusion, not going in with a cookbook method, but going in with an, a tremendous array of tools and ways of thinking about things and backlog of experience and, you know, being able to, you know, understand some of the political dynamics and that sort of thing so that you truly can be, and I think another term, uh, that's probably at least, you know, somewhat related is the notion self as instrument. Um, and, and I'm going to, yeah, strongly vote for, to me, that's going to be the more effective, you know, change practitioner is the one who's going sure. in, you know, as, as a systems analyst, as a, as a process consultant, you know, self as instrument. Um, and, uh, um, uh, I, I guess to me, I also relate that notion to, you know, if we're talking about sort of the ideal model of the change practitioner or change practitioner of the future is, um, is, um, uh, 
that they're also, I, I, I think the future of the profession is to move toward um, a facilitator of the traditional leader. And I think maybe there's been a little bit of a pendulum swing away from the traditional leader as the change agent and sort of abdicating or delegating to the professional change practitioner. Now, granted, some of those really detailed, arcane, you know, methodologies and techniques need to be delegated, you know, delegated or abdicated or, or whatever. But I think, I think it goes too far when it, it shifts the locus of change itself to uh, kind of a third party, to a, to a, a separate change practitioner. And I kind of see those two movements coming hand in hand is, is the change practitioner moving more toward, you know, a process consultant uh, type, certainly with an array of, you know, particular tools and techniques, but process consultant and then moving toward um, also toward um, shifting the locus of change back to the leader and being almost like the, the train, the trainer, you know, train the leader to be a change agent versus be the leader's uh, change agent. And maybe I'm speaking to the choir or maybe that's a very con, you know, uh, controversial notion or somewhere in between, but I think that's kind of where I land. And, and then a third uh, sort of related idea that, you know, you kind of triggered there is, when you mentioned, uh, shoot, you said something about project management. Now I can't remember what it was, uh, but just the notion of, um, or maybe it was something you said made me think of project management. But if you compare change management and project management, I think um, the realm of change management and the community it, itself are tremendously diverse. And the, the, the range of people you see uh, you know, the range of practitioners you see in uh, change management and the range of disciplines and, and capabilities is tremendously broad. And and I think that's, you know, that's a good thing. And I don't, I, I think, you know, I'm skeptical that we'll ever be able to bottle change management very much, you know, beyond um, the notion of some, you know, kind of fairly, you know, conceptual and, and essential building blocks because the nature of the beast is, is, uh, so amorphous and and um, and uh, and the, the practitioners who do it it's not um, it's not a linear process it's very amorphous and uh, I think somewhere along the line you asked me well what, what what type of person makes a good change manager or what would you recommend uh, to a person who had an interest in a, in change management that sort of thing yeah I think we uh, did that on the failed podcast the one that oh. I deleted I think you answered that question oh, okay so not sure you know what I might have said at that time but uh, I think I'd, I I would come back to the notion of um, almost uh, you know a have broad experience you know be almost what would make a good strategist is, is I guess what I'm thinking of not sure. sort of a formal methodologist but a broad kind of strategic uh, and again maybe I just convey my biases but if you were to ask me a what what's going to make a good change practitioner or what would I advise someone who's interested in the field ultimately you know as we move towards more and more complexity that's kind of the uh, the, uh, the sort of the the, the range of skills. Um, I'd be thinking of. By the way, I thought of the name that I was forgetting earlier. So, oh, who is the OD practitioner? That I, th uh, uh, I think it's John Cotter. Is it oh, John yeah, Cotter? Sure. Is it John? I'm pretty sure it's John. Anyway, yeah, he's, he's kind of uh, the godfather of uh, change management. Sure. Okay. Okay. Yeah. He's got an interesting vignette he does on. He's starting to think about how networks fit. How how some of this amorphous activity will map to more of a network than a hierarchy and then how hierarchies and networks will fit. And, and I got to say, and, and, and for me, I came to that idea thinking about uh, really doing ecosystem thinking and, and, and some thinking I'm doing around innovation ecosystems, really inter-organizational uh, innovation ecosystems. And I've kind of, I've kind of arrived at that notion of, you know, the, 
you know, the traditional organizations, a hierarchy, amorphous, non-repetitive activity happens in a network to a large degree. Right. And then how does the network and the hierarchy interact? And then wouldn't you know, lo and behold, I kind of discovered Cotter's thinking around that realm. So for me, it kind of reinforced, you know, the notion, but really back to your point around, uh, well, you know, who's doing it? Uh, I, my eyes are, are you know, are, are peeled for, you know, the first example I can mention, but, you know, just ju- just indicate I'm maybe not the only person thinking along those lines and not to kind of name names or name drop or whatever, but I think Cotter's doing some thinking in that direction as well. You you know, when you talk about ecosystems, you also have been an early adopter of SNA, of social network analysis. So is there any, are you seeing that being used anywhere? And, and what's the value of SNA uh, from a change point of view or from an innovation point of view, maybe? Sure. Yeah. Great, great question. Um, so, yeah, social network analysis, the ability of, and I think one of the seminal papers came out of California Management Review around 2002, the first piece to really articulate what are we doing when we talk about SNA, social network analysis? And it's really the, 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 I think the title of the article was Making Invisible Work Visible. And the point is that informal, you know, the informal organization is really where the work gets done. And, and kind of we all know that. And, and as even as we make advances in neuroscience and start to realize, you know, just the kind of the layered model of the way the brain works and that everything comes through the emotional layer to get to the rational layer, that, um, that, um, um, you know, the question then becomes, how do we speak to the emotional layer? And we're and we're learning that it's really more through, you know, kind of the um, kind of the the arts and humanities and and um, and, uh, you know, through storytelling and some pieces like that. And I also think it's evidence of why <clears throat> social networks are so powerful in organizations is because they speak more to that emotional level and they they motivate activity more at the emotional level than they do at the rational level. And and so if if what change is about is addressing the way the organization does work, then gee, wouldn't change be more effective if we address the way work is kind of really fundamentally being done. And it's really fundamentally being done at the informal level. And it's social network analysis that helps us to uncover the informal the informal organization. And I think there's, yeah, lots of opportunity ahead to apply social network analysis as a change tool. And we're probably even starting to hear terms like change networks um, mm-hmm. yep. and, and how can we uh, take some of the, you know, some of the capabilities of social network analysis and, and uh, um, help, un, you know, help uncover the way the organization is working and, and then introduce interventions that uh, will be adopted, excessive, uh, accepted and, and help change stick. So I think again, good change agents always have sought out the uh, the champion network, as sure. it's often called. Now it's nice to see that there's a rigor, there's a process, there's um, advanced thinking, and how those trust networks, how those formal or informal networks uh, get things done within the organization, and then how to tap into it. I think that's just fascinating. Absolutely, Dan. Yeah, I was going to reinforce it, and I was going to go there. You connected the dots for me. I was going to connect the dots back to sponsor analysis, stakeholder analysis, right. and in fact. A, do SNA for those, you know, for those activities and B, yes, you know, to some degree, that's what those activities were doing as they were uncovering, um, you know, the, the underlying social network. So yeah. it was interesting. And again, going to the macro micro, uh, you know, paradox of when you're tasked on a project with a very focused uh, and limited scope, you're seeing a lot of these inputs and outputs uh, for the broader organization. And if there's a way that we can, as change practitioners, aggregate those. So 
how do you tap into the informal network uh, and the communication network and the knowledge network so that um, everyone can benefit from the analysis that you've done on your own project and, and aggregate that, you know, and kind of create that heat map for the organization. Yep. That's where I see change management and OD playing better together, or at least HR as the uh, curator, if you will, of that and, and sure. helping apply that to uh, senior leaders or, or the, you know, those responsible for the strategy deployment within an organization. Cause to me, that's how you take stuff off the plate. Yep. You know, Absolutely. we, we, yeah. we fight for mindshare on all these projects and, you know, how much capacity for change does each impacted audience have? Well, if no one is looking at it from a portfolio view, we're always as change practitioners deployed against projects fighting this uphill battle, uh, to, to have a positive impact. Um, so to me, that's, you know, that's where I think there's a very practical application of SNA and, and, and we're feeders into that, um, assuming that there's someone there to receive it. Yeah, well, and, and, and again, it's an adoption process and, and it's a tool. It's a fairly arcane tool that, you know, executives will gradually have to, you know, to uh, assimilate. But I think it aligns with a lot of the themes we've been talking about. One, one of the uh, most powerful aspects of social network analysis is that in the process of making the, the network transparent, it becomes much more useful. All of a sudden, that right. network becomes a lot stronger. And so, again, a way of um, approaching, you know, from a bottom-up kind of organic perspective, kind of like, you know, in sync with the, the sort of the DNA notion um, of uh, bringing in a tool that will um, kind of organically, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, bring to bear, you know, on the, on the system, uh, a lot of forces that, you know, just are underlying that are, are latent, but haven't been released because the, you know, because the underlying system wasn't, wasn't evident. And so again, a, you know, a way of enabling and equipping, um, you know, the, um, the inherent organization to, you know, be kind of its own change agent rather than going in and, 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 you know, we could talk about the techniques of like network weaving, which is another more, active process you do once the act once the network becomes visible but um there's a lot of you know passive activity you know organic you know bottom-up activity that can happen um uh, inherently within the organization once the um once the uh, uh network becomes visible and i think again that's the future direction that you know as as change you know practitioners we want to equip and strengthen the organization, not kind of create a dependence upon, you know, ourselves as, you know, a kind of the, you know, necessary component, but how can we equip? Because there'll always be another level to take, you know, there, there's always a maturity model and there's always another level we can take that organization to. So let's equip, you know, them to kind of organically, um, you know, absorb as much of the capability as possible. And I think it really um, comes back to, A, the bottom-up sort of DNA model, and then you mentioned, uh, you know, the portfolio notion. And I think it, I, I think that the DNA model connects the dots to the notion of portfolio in almost like a gravitational or almost like a, um, you know, biological sense in that, um, uh, shoot, uh, how was I going to articulate that? In the, in the same sense that, I mean, we have organizations that are overburdened with change. They're, A, they're doing too much, so right. they're over capacity. B, the projects aren't connected. Um, yep. and, and I think, and, I, and I'm a big fan, and we didn't go down that route, but, uh, but I'm a big supporter and, and reinforcer of the notion of, you know, uh, of portfolio analysis and having a change portfolio and portfolio analysis is something I love to do and look at the big picture and connect the dots and that sort of thing. But I think 
a bottom-up approach. If you, if you think about you know any organism, it's inherently doing portfolio analysis from the DNA level up, you know, and that and that's a more powerful yes. And we we can do some you know portfolio analysis from the top down, but that introducing a more organic kind of you know uh, foundation into the uh, organization is going to also help uh, you know not only shift you know responsibility and and, and uh, you know change activity to the organization and to leadership itself, but also it's going to start to help to solve that inherent portfolio issue. Um, if you start from the DNA level up, then by definition, the organization, A, will have all of its activities in inherently connected and B, won't take on more capacity. How often do you see, I mean, in a, in a healthy state, do you see an organism take on more capacity than it has? It, it doesn't. So, you know, I, again, I like the DNA level up thought process because one of the things I've been advocating and I know you've heard uh, me rant on this a couple times is that we need to be change Illuminati mm -hmm. and whether or not it's a formal or informal network, we have this information, we have this enlightened knowledge, we need to do something with it. And, and if we can aggregate it, if we can curate it, if the, if we can offer up some level of, uh, you know, of that portfolio view in our, you know, in our travels and in our work, yeah. Uh, so that we can improve the systems as we go, then I think that's uh, that's kind of our responsibility as change practitioners is to to capture, document, and share uh, so that others can benefit from it. And that, you know, to me, that's where strategic decay happens in organizations because, to your point, there's too much on the plates, and because no one either hmm. doesn't have visibility to take something off. Um, you know, we need that that level of communication, and that actually I, one of the names we're tossing around for this podcast is the Change Illuminati. Okay, good. Uh, I like so it. I, I like how you've reinforced that. Well, and again, in your in your abundance model, saying you kind of like do that, you know, in in process, and it's a very process process consultation. It has a process consultation feel to it. Is oh, by the way, yes, I'm dedicated to this project, but you know, as a byproduct, I'm going to like pass off some you know illumination of. The Some knowledge, notion yeah. of, a, of a of a change portfolio, and yeah. then you know ultimately moving the organization in that direction. Yeah, hmm. you know we uh, there's so much more we could talk about, but we've uh, gone a little over an hour. Or so, and I think about the our audience, whether or not they're like on an elliptical machine or out for a run, or it, or did we yeah, talk them all the way home? Yeah. Maybe uh, maybe we we call it a, we call it done, huh? No, good, good, very interesting, uh, very insightful questions really spurred some uh, thinking really uh, enjoyed it. a lot of fun i always like talking to you dan uh, thanks yeah, for inviting me all right awesome thanks don't forget to follow change guild on facebook twitter linkedin and instagram you can find us on the web at changeguild.co change guild because the easy stuff is already done This has been a Change Guild Digital Studios production.